Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. So it's been a few days since I spoke with Gil for this last Tuesday's episode, and a lot of what he talked about, I not only thought about over the last few days, I've actually even implemented it today in something that I did. So I'll talk about that in a minute. But as I mentioned in the intro on Tuesday, the concepts that he you know, shared really resonated with me. And not just because I like talking or you know telling stories, <laughs> but because of how important I know it is. One, to have actual methodology and concepts that can and should be applied throughout a career in fraud. You know, there's a lot of bits and pieces and things that we pick up in the, on the job training and, you know, bits and pieces from conferences and our peers and conversations. But that's one of the first, it really is one of the first uh, trainings that I've seen that actually really follows a methodology rather than here's how you look at fraud or this or that. It's really talking about here's how you build on the story. And, you know, it's important to take what you know for sure and add more context to be able to tell a complete story. And not to jump to conclusions, right? Not to have biases and, and assume, well, you know, our manual review or our, you know, our fraud system flagged this for manual review, so it must already be fraud, right? And I used to always tell my team, instead of saying, tell me why this is a good order, try to prove that this is a good order when it came through, show me why it's a bad order. Start off on the good side. In this case, it's tell the best possible story, tell the worst possible story, and then figure out what pieces of information you need to be able to confirm one or the other. And then another reason why I know it's so important to develop these type of skills and why I thought that I'd talk about it a little bit more in today's episode too, is to ensure that we aren't making up, you know, our end of the stories, right? Our ending to the stories with those biases, you know, when performing an interview or even data analysis. Sometimes when you come in with bias, you're going to just look for things that confirm that bias, right? Your confirmation bias. And typically because, you know, we call our departments wrong departments and because it can be a real, it can feel like a lot of pressure on your shoulders to try to protect your company and do what's best for them that oftentimes will look for data to tell the story that we want to tell rather than allowing the data to tell the story of what actually happened and looking for those facts. And then the other reason is just how important it is for individual companies and fraud teams and honestly, the advancement of our industry to properly explain the importance of fraud, what can be done, what it looks like in your organization. I feel like sometimes I'm spreading the <laughs> spreading the gospel of fraud prevention. And actually, I first said that line as a joke when uh, I worked for a online publication that also had a conference and when they're looking for a new title for me because I wasn't writing for the paper as much or the publication as much as I was before because I think I was editor at large. It said I was you know, in charge of content but also 
encouraging people to attend the event, speak at the event, et cetera, their annual conference. And the title they gave me was, it was evangelist. I, I don't know if it was fraud, but I can't remember what it was, but some kind of evangelist. And I was actually raised quite religious, so my mother was satisfied. But I was like, no, 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 I'm just spreading the, the gospel of fraud. I'm not spreading any other gospel. Uh, but um, even today, uh, you know, what the presentation that I did today was, in total, it was four hours of a training uh, to actually talk to the entire company, including people who aren't focused in fraud, of a solution provider that primarily works with uh, financial institutions and fintechs and a few other companies. And one of their core values is just to try to really understand things and they like to learn new things. And they're having a week where all of their employees that work remote all come into the city where their corporate office is for team building and you know for getting work done and all that. But also this week, they wanted to have it really be fraud focused. So it was almost like a mini fraud conference. I know I'm not the only you know, speaker. I know there's a lot of you know content in the afternoons focusing on fraud, and then in the morning there's team building, and then obviously just like at conferences after <laughs> after the content, everyone went out to dinner, and then there was a bit of a gathering at the hotel bar afterwards. And I really appreciate the fact that this was something that this com- is important to this company. And even though they don't work with a lot of online or e-commerce companies or you know the type of companies that I typically work with they were very curious about how is it different from what we see and I was able to implement a lot of the storytelling aspects that Gil told or that Gil shared you know in explaining to them some of the burdens that are on merchants right and being able to kind of build up on it and these are some skills I've already had but I think it's so important to not just share it with the companies in our bubble, right? To explain to other companies that are maybe tangential to us or kind of similar to us or related in some ways, you know, over a Venn diagram, to be able, you know, who knows, right? They might come up with a brand new idea that can help solve a lot of things, or maybe it just helps educate, you know, a hundred more consumers or, but I think it's a good practice, right? And I hope that people, you know, who are on the front lines and within companies and, you know, full-time employed and not having your own business like I do. Um, This is an initiative that you want to take on as far as sharing with parts of the organization. And in the Phytology Benchmarking Report, I actually provided a few examples of things that merchants have done. One of them was a merchant who created a fraud, uh, just a core deck, explaining what the fraud team does, what fraud looks like, why it's important, all of those things. And then invited different teams to a lunch and learn. This was before COVID, so they would do a brown bag lunch, you know, in a conference room somewhere. And he would change the last couple of slides to be specific to the department that he was talking to as far as how fraud and payments, because he had payments as well, impact that organization, right? How it impacts their KPIs. If it's marketing, they're looking at conversion, right? If it's engineering, well, you know, there's just, there's different pieces of it, right, that they're looking at. If it's customer service, well, if fraud's doing their job right, you're not going to have as many calls as when we're doing it wrong. Either because it's cardholders saying, ah, my card was stolen on your website, who are you? Or people saying, I'm using my card, I'm using all my legitimate information, why did you cancel my order? So those are the ways that you we can impact other departments. And then also, 
asking them for help. Because when there's more transparency, we just can't assume that everybody knows what we do. And when there's more transparency, they're on the lookout. And oftentimes it's like, oh, I hadn't thought of this before, but this might be of interest to you. I don't know if I've told this story or not, but when I ran my own team for uh, the startup, and that it was a handbag rental company, and I was getting, we had a membership for like $10 a month that was recurring that basically just gave people a reduced price on the rentals. It was kind of, I mean, I don't want to call it scammy, but you know, it probably wouldn't fly in 2023. And I started to get several chargebacks on those and I couldn't figure them out. When I researched them, it was obviously fraud. And I just couldn't figure out what the motivation was, right? Why are people using stolen cards to purchase this $10 a month subscription that doesn't give you anything if you're not renting on top of it? And they weren't. They paid for a month and then it, you know, it would go bad. And I thought it was some kind of a card testing, you know, scheme, but I just couldn't understand why they were picking this. Like, it was just very obscure. And one day I went to the bathroom and as I was coming out, uh, he was washing my hands. The head of marketing uh, was in there and she said, hey, I've been seeing some really weird activity on our Google affiliate networks. And I was like, what's that? Because I was still new in my career, uh, new in e-commerce. And she explained that in order to boost up sales, they had offered more of an incentive through the Google ad affiliate network. So best way to explain it is, you know, people that have blogs, oftentimes they will link to products whether it's on a major merchant's website or a smaller one. And oftentimes it's because they've been offered incentives, right? Sometimes that company is like, ooh, we need to boost our sales for the month. We're gonna say that we're gonna give a 20% commission for any sale that they refer through their link to our website. And Google ads um, and their affiliate network would, I know they still do this, but it's just in different ways now. And there's a lot of different companies that can do it, not just through Google. But they would kind of oversee that and then calculate how much was owed to each side and all of that. So as a third party, right? So you weren't assuming, you know, thinking, oh, of course, the, you know, the retailer isn't going to tell me how much gets, you know, through on my link, that kind of thing. Well, as she explained it, she said that they were offering $5 for memberships and then 20% for rentals of that. And I said, the $10 memberships? Because we had yearly too, but then we filled it. Yeah, we're just trying to get you know, more members because as we know, a lot of valuations are calculated on number of users. And in this case, it was number of paid users. And I was like, huh, I think that, that explains my chargebacks. Because she explained how weird it was. Like the emails looked weird and all that. The only reason why she knew, hey, I should maybe run this past Carice is because I had been socializing fraud to other departments. Sometimes formally, sometimes informally, but letting them know it's not this, you know, black box thing that you know you have to that you have to have a secret password for to, you know, be able to understand it. And I mean several times customer service would be like, um, I have a chat from, you know, this IP, but it says they're from here, you know, things like that. You basically deputize other people in your company, but on top of that, they understand your value more. And I really believe that for each company to be able to appreciate and value fraud teams, as well as as an industry, to be able to level up, to really have a seat at the table within the larger e-commerce area and not just be this little thing that's in the corner or in banking or fintech or wherever it is. It's so important to evangelize that internally, right? So that's uh, you know another reason why I think it's important. And so 
kind of parlaying that to what the presentation was I did today, this was unique for me because I'm typically, if I'm doing in-person presentations, it's either to large groups of e-commerce companies or, uh, you know, fraud fighters, that kind of thing, or to, I've done some that are to sales and marketing people for specific vendors that genuinely want to understand the market. They genuinely want to understand what are we doing wrong to not, you know, get our product out there or, you know, how are we hurting ourselves in a way? And a lot of times that's the case. They don't realize it, right? Because in other SaaS sales that works. So when I'm doing those presentations to select vendors, some of the concepts are in the merchants are from Mars, vendors are from Venus, uh, episodes that I've done in the past. Some of them aren't. Uh, and I often will tailor them to that specific company if they genuinely want to know what the market is saying about them. Because I think it's good to give them feedback. I will never, ever, ever tell them who said it. And I will make sure that I take out any identifying information so they can't guess. I won't say where they are or located or anything else. But, you know, it's interesting. I can tell a lot about a solution provider that way. And so far, I've only done that with the companies that I know will use the knowledge for good. But I did create a slide deck called uh, How to Lose a, Pro- a Merchant Prospect in 10 Ways that was a pretty big hit for a solution provider. I mean, I did feel like I focused a little too much on the negative and not as much on what they could do. But I learned, you know, that's my own self kind of saying, providing that feedback on me. But in this case, it was, you know, speaking to a company, some people are you know, passionate about fraud, some aren't. And talking to them about a type of fraud online that they're not as used to. And it really actually, as I was walking through some of the slides and, and some of the stories, I realized that I think there's a lot of things, I mean, obviously, right, there's a lot of things we take for granted or we just kind of know inherently, but we don't really fully understand. And when I was thinking about, okay, well, a lot of these people have a baseline of knowledge in banking or at least of the data that banking has and all of that. So I started out with asking people to think about, you know, their relationship with their bank. Because as I thought about this, I was like, you know, yes, we use some of the same terms and all of that, but there are so many differences in banking and e-commerce. And I just had never written them down before. So I thought I'd share a few. So I asked, you know, when you think about your relationship with your bank, like what, what was that like, right? How long have you had that relationship? When in the process is an account created? Because, you know, for a bank, you need to create account an account and have it approved through a KYC process. Sometimes that involves credit, sometimes it doesn't. But it definitely provides a lot of data, like often your social security number or your government ID number in other countries outside of the U.S., as well as your date of birth and all that information. That's not the same, you know, in other areas online. You know, the account has to be approved, right, before you can get a loan or you can, you know, use your checking account or uh, use a credit card. And then what requirements do they have to meet, right? There are certain KYC thresholds. Sometimes they can ask for, or sometimes they will if it's an online onboarding, uh, a selfie and a picture of a government ID. The relationship is a lot stronger, as well as... Oftentimes people are you know, very conscious to provide their actual information with their bank. They want to make sure that they can use and access their money, right? So they're going to use their real email address, their real phone number, their real date of birth, their real address, all of that information. But in other contexts, that's not so much the case, especially now. And I'll talk about that in a minute. 
And then I asked, how much does your bank know about you based on your account activity? Now, obviously, they won't know exactly what you purchase at online companies or in-person companies, but they'll see where you shop, right? If you have a credit card with that bank, you may only use it for travel purchases because you get air miles. Or you might have a card that you only, uh, you really haven't made a purchase over $200 in the last three years. And now all of a sudden the bank sees, huh, this is a thousand dollar purchase and it's at a shoe store and they've never used their card for that. So the bank also has a bigger, if you have other uh, accounts with them, like checking and mortgage or other things, and they have even more information about you. It's very robust. So when you come back, or even if someone tries to log in as you, they have so much history with you that they can do a lot around behavior. But, you know, when you're thinking about online retail, I did say that the top three are (laughs) exempt because you could argue that some of those probably know more about your family and your habits and so much more uh, than your bank because they actually know what you're purchasing. (laughs) But other than those big three, um, you know, usually the relationship with each retailer, each online company that you shop with is, is different, right? It's not the same as okay, I have a credit card through this bank and I have a credit card through that bank and I have a you know checking account and a credit card through that bank. They all have similar products as each other. Therefore, their fraud is going to be similar, right? The way that you address it, the way that you stop it, the way that you understand it, the way you look at the good customers as a baseline and then look for those outliers. It's going to be different or it's going, I'm sorry, it's going to be the same for banking well as online. It's going to be different. Because each company, based on the business model or what they're selling or the value of the items or so many other factors or the systems that they use compared to their competitors or whatever it is, you're going to have a different experience, right, with each one. You're going to have a different type of relationship with online retailers or online companies in general, whether it's through gaming or ticketing, you know, event ticketing, travel, etc. But if you have a relationship with three banks, it's probably going to be very similar, right? It'll be just kind of... However you work with or interact with one credit card company, you'll probably do the same with the others, more or less. Also, you know, the frequency, right, that you shop at a specific site, like if it's where you get clothes for your kids online or, you know, where you buy tennis shoes or skincare products or whatever else, you're not doing it every day like you are with your bank, right? Presumably you're using a credit card or a debit card or your checking account regularly, whereas each online company has a siloed relationship with that person so it's not like they're talking to each other for various reasons a lot of it's around data privacy but also competitive advantage especially on the good side right it can be argued that sharing negative lists isn't really going to help your competitor much because chances are I mean, they really shouldn't be marketing to them but if you had a shared database with your competitor i mean how could they not you know, think about passing it on to marketing. So there's a lot of challenges there, but every company based on so many factors, as well as just, you know, oftentimes they won't see a customer for a year or two and then they'll come back. Uh, That's just very different than if you're on the banking side. So if you're thinking about an e-commerce account and the relationship with an online company, you know, the account is created, assuming that an account is created and not a guest checkout, after the items are already in the cart. The customer's already expecting it, right? And there's really not a full KYC process. Now, obviously for marketplaces and a few other outlying business models, you're going to have some regulations. But for the most part, I mean, we're not asking for much, right? We're asking for name, email, phone number, billing address, you know, card information, etc. That's pretty much it. And, you know, shipping address if it's to somewhere else. And when, you know, 
while you are providing so much personal information and you're making sure that it's the right information with your bank, for online companies, that's not the same, right? You're not giving them much, like I said, but also more people are prone to just providing bogus information. I, several people in this uh, company that I spoke to today said that they don't ever use the same email address, right? Or they make up phone numbers or they do all types of different things because they don't want their data stored. They don't want, uh, they don't think that e-commerce companies deserve to know their real information. They use fake names, all of that. Well, they're essentially in a way adding to the noise, right? They're creating, it's not a full synthetic identity fraud like it, it can be in lending and banking and things like that. But it could be impossible for you know online companies to verify that information. It can also make you really blend in with bad actors, right? And so I think, honestly, and I've said this before, the last several years, it's actually become harder to identify. Yes, some of the fraud trends have changed and, and are a little more sophisticated. But overall, especially depending on the type of solution you use and if that particular solution provider has chosen not to innovate the product in the last few years, some companies are having a much bigger problem with false declines and with declining a lot of orders for suspicion of fraud because the fraud tools just don't have enough information. They don't have enough details to be able to say, oh, no, this is a good customer and that's a bad customer. We have broad strokes, you know, velocity rules or exception reporting or just rules that say if this and this and that, but you can't even customize them in some cases to, you know, your own company's needs. Well, then you're gonna lose a lot more good customers. And the thing is, is that's impacting your company too. Just like we have you know, pressure on our shoulders to protect the company and that can be a heavy weight. I don't know why more people don't think about, well, gosh, me canceling all of these good orders is exactly the same thing as a chargeback coming through. We may not get an extra fee, but we're losing out on not just that one transaction, but the lifetime value. That's hurting your company more. So if you're, it's important to you to protect your company and help it succeed, you need to prioritize those approvals. Just as much as honestly, it should be more than fraud, just like as Vinit talked about two weeks ago. And if your provider is not going to innovate, if you're not getting enough information, it's really important to add an extra layer to your risk stack to be able to either add more information and transparency or it might just be time to what some people refer to as rip and replace and i know it's a huge pain but trust me it'll be worth so much money i mean i wish i could say how much money a few of the merchants i've worked with this past year were leaving on the table and didn't even realize it it is eight figures or above per month if we're looking at annually then it's even more than that you know in some cases it's nine figures not always they're usually you know eight figures but there's always room for improvement a couple of the other things i mentioned between banking and e-commerce fraud that i think would be interesting for those of you on either side of the fence uh the similarities are you know in both cases you're looking for patterns and outliers you're looking for the control group and those outliers and you're asking yourself does this make sense you're telling the story as gil talked about you know to try to decide is this right or not now obviously it's a lot more efficient and cheaper and everything else to not rely so heavily on manual review and to be able to identify a partner that you can trust that 
will be focused on approving your orders just as much as they are. That's why it's so important for you to hold your solution providers accountable, but also looking at, you know, is it important to them and do they do a good job at identifying the good orders and making sure that those pass without any friction? Because technically that's how, I mean, that really is how your paycheck is paid. That's where your bonuses come from. That's where the stability of your company, you know, to try to prevent layoffs can come from. It's not the only place, but it's one of them. You know, there are different use cases, but the technology overall is fairly similar. These days, it's important to leverage technology. You know, you really can't just do manual review anymore, right? Especially for volume sake. So it's important to work with a provider that is able to at least narrow down that gray area, right? They're really good at saying this is for sure black, this is for sure white, but the gray area is very controlled. It's they're not sending, you know, 30% of orders to be manually reviewed. That's just not sustainable. And especially with the holidays coming up, there are several merchants that just will throw bodies at the problem. I personally don't think that that's the way to do it and have been working with a couple of merchants recently to help them prepare for the holiday season because either their chargebacks are too high or their approvals are too low. And they know when everything gets, you know, doubled or tripled for holiday season, the dollars are in those details. That's why in the Fraudology Benchmarking Report, you see the biggest companies you know, that process over $10 billion a year in payments, how important approval rates are to them. They have the highest approval rates. And trust me, they are the biggest target for new fraud trends and for new threats. So, you know, again, it's just something important to think about as you're looking at things is how much you know, if you need or not. But in banking, it's very similar, right? They'll have similar types of tools. Uh, they'll do investigations to try to, you know, understand and put together context in this, you know, in storytelling format, like they'll talked about. It works really well where you're able to say, okay, we're going to look at this. But both banking and e-commerce and marketplaces and all that, both of those industries are now relying on technology more than ever to help them make the right decisions and to help them just be able to really focus on the gray area. I mean, it used to be that there could be, you know, over a hundred manual reviewers at, you know, a couple of different large online companies. That's just not sustainable. And banks are finding that too. Other similarities, you know, obviously in putting strategy, um, context clues to protect, you know, ultimately protect you know, your company and your employers. One of the biggest differences I've noticed between fraud and e-commerce is what's stolen, <laughs> like duh, curries. But in banking, you know, it's money, right? To purchase extravagant items or to fund organized crime or human trafficking or terrorism, all the gross stuff we've talked about in the past. In e-commerce, it's stealing items to fence for money and then turning that money often, you know, to purchase the same things as, you know, um, stealing from a bank. But if you think about like a hundred years ago, when more people would rob banks in person, just comparing the different, you know, the MO and the different things that a bank robber would do versus someone who's shoplifting in a store, that's a good example of, you know, how they're different, right? At the end of the day, both companies are out money and they could be out the same amount. You know, somebody robs a jewelry store or something like that, right? But because it's different in person, it's obviously gonna be different, you know, online as well. So that was just a little bit from the presentation I did today. I thought it was interesting and I know that a lot of people listen to the podcast in different areas of fraud. I mean, obviously I focus on e-commerce primarily because A, that's what I know and B, it's a lot of who my audience is, but I know there are a lot of people in banking that also really enjoy just listening to people in fraud 
having a conversation. And even if what we're talking about specifically doesn't apply directly to your company, there's a lot of things that you can learn. Oh, well, you know, our company's different or we're you know, on the banking side or we're you know, on the government side or anything else, but I could see how we could apply that. And that's you know really what why Fraology was created because there is such a big gap in information sharing and that's one of the many ways that we need to get ahead as an industry. Ultimately, you know this I'm happy to have this presentation done. I am pretty tired, if I'm being honest. The last few weeks have been really tough. I've been stretched very thin and burning the candle at both ends, just with a couple of projects that ended up both being bigger and, and more detailed than I had first expected or understood it to be. And a friend in front yesterday say that, you know, whenever she's tackling a new project, and for me, this is, you know, really relatable, you know, whenever I'm working with a new customer, I have to try to predict, right, how much work it's going to be and, you know, the cost as well as how many hours I'm going to allocate that so that I can balance other responsibilities and other clients and things like that. But my friend in fraud said, well, whenever starting a new project in fraud, it's kind of like doing a home remodel. You know, once you tear the walls down and you see black mold, well, you can't just put new walls over it. You have to take care of it. Once you pull the carpet up uh, to see, you know, hardwoods or, you know, the base floor, you might realize that termites have, you know, been rotting that wood and it's not safe. Or there's a foundation problem. I feel like that happens a lot with foundational issues uh, in fraud as well. So I've had a couple of those intersect at the same time. So I don't remember the last time I went to sleep before 1 a.m. <laughs> it's been a couple weeks. But I also really enjoy this. I mean, I really enjoy being able to share information and help you know, answer questions for anyone, you know, whether they're in e-commerce or not. And I also really enjoy working with the online retailer that I'm working with. And by far the best thing about those projects, whether they're a teardown or a remodel, is the finished product. You're looking at that, you're like, wow, this is a beautiful house. Or wow, these processes are so much better and the proof is in the pudding. We can see that by the chargebacks going way down and the approval rates going way up. And it's so important once you finish that project to Tell the story, right? Tell the story to leadership. Use those storytelling concepts from the episode with Gil on Tuesday. Like a lot of times we forget to run our victory lap. Hey, we implement, you know, thanks to you guys, we put in this budget. Wanted to share with you, you know, how far it went and what we did. That's a good way to get more budget. Once other parts of your company go, wow, we're not just like, you know, stopping sales. It's actually more data is providing us with better decisions. And it's also a good way to say, Hey, I saved the company, you know, eight figures last year. Where's my raise? Unfortunately, I have yet to find a full-time employer or a consulting client who's willing to pay at basis points of how much you save them. If that were true, I would probably be doing this from a beach or somewhere very warm uh, and tropical. I'd still be on the podcast, right? I'd still be talking about fraud, I'm sure. But there's just a lot of money to be saved. That's my point. And we need to be communicating all throughout the path of, hey, this is what the problem is and this is how it can be fixed. And then, oh, well, we you know, implemented what we thought would work and these are the outcomes. And if we add this other thing or if we change this process or policy, it'll be even better. That's how you gain credibility and being able to really feel valued. Like those 66% of merchants that you have implemented this piece 
you know, sharing information with leadership and cross-functional teams and explaining to them why it matters and walking them through the details. Those people feel appreciated in their company. I just can't say it enough because we're all data-driven people and the proof is in the data. Well, guys, I really appreciate you bearing with me the last few weeks. I mean, I've had great guests and I'm so grateful to them. But I do just feel like I've been you know, recording some of these episodes the last few weeks late at night and a special shout out to my editors at Hosky Media because I have been submitting these way later than I intend to and and later than I should but they're still getting out on time and they're pros but I'm definitely not trying to take advantage of that. With this presentation done and complete and successful even though I am staying on the road for one more day to get to meet up with a couple of merchant friends. It's always my favorite part about getting to travel. I usually know people in our industry uh, in every major metro city, and so it's fun to be able to meet up with them in person, whether I have before or not. But I'll be you know, working on this other project, and then once that other project is complete, well, I'm going to have a lot more time to be able to sleep, <laughs> as well as to continue to get great guests on the podcast, as well as provide good content on these Thursday episodes. Uh, that reminds me, I would really, you know, I've done so, a handful of fraud news episodes lately. I'd love to hear if you enjoy those or what format on Thursdays you like best. I kind of, you know, jump around, but I, I want to make data-driven decisions too. It's just challenging to do when it's a one-way conversation. But that's it for me this week. I am looking forward to speaking with you more next week. And I will talk to you then. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.